For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 23 through 27. We're going to close out the chapter. And I entitled this, Pictures of Radical Christian Living. Paul begins in verse 23 by saying, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So we mentioned this last week that this word gospel simply means the good news, but it really encapsulates the purpose of the Bible. That because of our wrongdoing, there's a separation between us and God. That we are alienated from Him because God is perfectly just. And because of His nature, is compelled to bring about justice in the world. And so He can't just simply overlook our moral wrongdoing. Yet, the Bible presents another picture about God's character that He's also incredibly merciful. And as a result, God in His compassion and love for us decided that instead of simply judging us or punishing us, that He was actually going to come and pay for the penalty that we deserve in order to bring about reconciliation, to bring us back close to Him. So the good news of the Bible then is that we can come to God receive His forgiveness free of charge, and that that forges a relationship with God that will never end and that will continue on into eternity. So that's the good news. And Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the Gospel. He was preoccupied with sharing this good news. And He says this in verses 16 and 17. He says, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship or responsibility that God has entrusted to me. So Paul viewed this as really a responsibility that God gave to him and that he was to really carry out. And, you know, when you look at the Apostle Paul, this radical picture of Christian living seems like it doesn't necessarily apply to us. And yet, we see throughout the New Testament that God calls us to carry out this same work of sharing the message of Christ. Now, I don't know if you've interacted with Christians very much, especially people around here, you might be puzzled when you find out that people will talk to you and say, well, I'm a Christian. They start sharing the message of Christ. You're like, you know, religion seems like one of those things that really belongs in the the private portion of your life. It's kind of like asking somebody, you know, who they voted for, how much they make. It's like, that's private. You don't go around talking about that with people. And so religion sort of gets thrown into the same category. And yet, the Bible gives really a compelling reason for us as believers in Christ to make this the main focus of our life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18-20, through Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are our ambassadors of Christ. So, he uses this term here, reconciliation, over and over again. Reconciliation describes the process that maybe an estranged or a separated couple goes through when they decide that they want to mend their marriage. So, to reconcile means to come back together, to come to an agreement, and there's a decision to move forward in the relationship. And so, God essentially says that He wants to reconcile Himself to the world that stands estranged. And that He's actually called on us to become ambassadors for Christ. Somebody who He delegates the responsibility to share this good news of reconciliation. And so, if the Bible indeed speaks truthfully about what, we, what, what kind of life we can have after this, then really it becomes one of the most important messages that anybody can hear. It's really a matter of life or death. In uh, 1980, this large freighter hit uh, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge and it took out one of the pillars and um, 35 people died because the freighter actually took out one of the sections just beyond the crest of the bridge. And so a Greyhound bus and a number of cars flew over the crest of the bridge not knowing the bridge was out. One man, as he was nearing the crest of the bridge, actually stopped 16 inches away from, from falling into the bay. He immediately jumped out and started running in the opposite direction to warn people, flagging people to stop. Now, <clears throat> in a way, when you think about you know, our lives, God has revealed to us the end, that we're headed toward destruction without Christ. And so, really, we're almost obligated to share this good news with people not because, you know, we feel this duty to do so, but because we care about people. We don't want to see people perish. We want to see people reconciled to God. Now, at times, you know, there are going to be people who look at us sort of funny because they're like, why are you so zealous? Why are you so obsessed with following God? Maybe your, your parents or family members or friends might say, you know, it's just a little obsessive how much you're fixated on sharing this good news with people. And yet, you know, imagine as this guy is running across the bridge in the opposite direction, into oncoming traffic, waving people down. You know, people are just looking at him like he's crazy and decide to drive on. I mean, yeah, he would be misunderstood, but uh, that probably wouldn't stop him from trying to save more people. And so in the same way, you know, people may not understand why we have directed our entire lives to following God, and yet, if the Bible is truthful in what it says, then really we have one of the most important things that we can tell people about. 
He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he refers to these games. And to the Corinthian audience, this would have immediately... um, they would have immediately connected this with the famous Isthmian Games, which was really second only to the Olympic Games in the ancient world. And these games had a number of different events, such as, you know, the foot race, they had a chariot race, they had wrestling, uh, they even had boxing. And, uh, you know, the first picture that he gives, he says, look, run in such a way that, that you are trying to win the prize. So he talks about running this race. And, you know, these uh, races aren't like a 100-meter dash. It's not like a sprint. It was more like an endurance race. They would run two laps around the stadium, which would be equivalent to about a mile. And so really what this points to is that the Christian life is sort of like a long-distance endurance race, which suggests that God calls on us to persevere, that there are going to be hardships along the way. You know, at times, we face suffering because we're living radically for God and people just don't understand us. They might even mock us, scoff at us for the kind of life that we're living, thinking that we're fools. Or maybe... Circumstances may come into our lives, a death in the family, or maybe a loss of a job that creates incredible suffering. Um, Or, you know, we may miss out on opportunities because living all out for God, following Him radically, collides with what our world wants for us and expects. And so, you know, the Christian life is really a race of perseverance. It's about who's willing to endure. And he says that those who run the race and win receive a, a, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So the reward in the ancient world when you won the Isthmian Games in your specific event is they would give you a wild celery wreath that you would wear on your head. Sounds awesome, right? I'm sure, you know, modern Olympians are just like, I'm so glad we have a gold medal. At least, you know, if, I, if I'm down on my luck, I can like pawn that or something like that. But, you know, it's kind of silly that people devoted their entire lives to get this perishable wreath, training endlessly. And yet, God says that when we live our lives for Him, that we will receive eternal rewards, that He'll give us something that's imperishable. And so, one of the reasons why God says that it's important for us to devote our lives to following Him radically is because it's just a good investment. You know, when you invest in something that's not going to last, that's a bad investment, right? Or in a company that's going down. And yet, God says that we can pour our resources, our energy, our time into something that will yield eternal dividends. 
Um, think about what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 20. He says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in or steal. So he says, don't invest in things that are just going to deteriorate, that will perish with time. You know, the things that we think are so important in this life When we look at those things from a different perspective, from the vantage point of eternity, we're going to realize, why did I devote so much time into this thing that now doesn't matter at all? God says the thing that matters most is investing in our relationship with Him and investing in people because those are the things that have potential to last into eternity. You know, I was thinking about this, and um, it reminded me of my friend who, uh, one time we were out, uh, you know, in a cabin somewhere hanging out, and um, he was uh, sharing how his, his father had passed away suddenly from a, from a heart attack. And his father died, you know, around 65 years old, so pretty young. And he was describing how it was pretty jarring just to think that his dad was no longer around. He said, you know, the thing, though, that really sort of stuck out to me as as I would talk to him over the last few years was that he was just constantly talking about how sweet retirement was going to be. How for, you know, the decade leading up to retirement, he had been putting all this money into his 401k, into all these investments anticipating the kind of life he would be able to live after retirement. And he said, you know, the really sad thing is he died just days before retirement. And, you know, to me, that's sort of a picture of a life that's been wasted where you're investing in something that you're never going to be able to see. And so the question is, you know, are we investing our lives in things that are going to hold their value? into the next life. Well, the author of Hebrews adds to this a little bit using this same picture of a race. He says in 12 verse 1 and 2, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So, He talks about a couple things that we should throw aside. First of all, he talks about encumbrances. An encumbrance is something that weighs you down. It's something that hinders you. You know, when you talk to people who are really into endurance sports, you know, they will spend thousands of dollars trying to buy the lightest equipment, the the lightest clothing, Whatever it takes to to make sure that they can shave grams so that they can run the race more efficiently. They understand that the more weight you carry, the more energy you're expending. Um, I'm really, I've been riding my bike for a long time now, almost 10 years, and, um, you know, professional cyclists, um, they, over the course, you know, for example, in the Tour de France, they, you know, these professional athletes will ride over 2,000 miles in three weeks, riding over 100 miles every single day. 
And, you know, these pro teams will actually spend millions of dollars on the equipment that these cyclists will use, in some cases spending over $10,000 on a bike to make it as light as possible. And the reason they do this is because they realize over the course of 2,000 miles, even, you know, a pound or two or several grams equates to energy that's spent. Here's an example. This is from the uh, 2014 Tour de France, stage seven. And um, this is after 143 miles of racing. Um, Matteo Trentin beats Peter Sagan, one of, the, one of the greatest cyclists who's around today, by literally one and a half centimeters. They hit the line at 40 miles an hour. And so you think to yourself, okay, it's kind of silly that they would shave grams off of their bike, but, you know, to win the race, it could be a matter of grams, right? And so likewise, when you're into, you know, when you're into endurance racing, you want to throw off any encumbrance that, that possibly could be weighing you down. You know, if you ever line up for a half marathon, you see your friend, you know, standing there and he's got two pound weights on his ankles, you're like, what are you doing with that? You're like, what? what? I like wearing these. <laughs> You're like, well, you know, that doesn't disqualify you from the race, but it's stupid, right? <laughs> and so likewise, these encumbrances, they're, they're not necessarily things that are morally wrong, but they're things that could be a hindrance to you moving forward spiritually. You know, for some of us, that might be a relationship that hinders us from our full potential in Christ. For some of us, that might be a career or a major, you know, that we are just pouring all of our energy into and yet it crowds out our ability to serve God. And so these things aren't necessarily morally bad, right? They're morally neutral. And yet they could represent an encumbrance, something that could be holding us back from our full potential. And that makes sense when you think about athletes you know, they're often giving up things like spending time with their friends or going out to parties or having a drink because they're training. They're intent on winning the race. Then he also talks about throwing aside sin, something that could disqualify you. And you know, for some of us, that might be, you know, a secret addiction that we haven't come out with that holds us prisoner that prevents us from moving closer to people because of shame and guilt. You know, for some of us, it might be an immoral uh, sexual relationship. Uh, the guilt of that prevents us from seeing our true potential in Christ. And so, you know, Paul, or the author of Hebrews says that we should throw these things off. We should lay them aside. Um, not because God's going to judge us, not because he's going to throw us in hell if we, if we don't stop, but because it could hinder us from the thing that God wants us to do, which brings the maximum amount of fulfillment in our lives. And that's really why Paul, at the end of this passage in verse 27, says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that I, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so Paul is mindful that um, if he doesn't gain self-control, that that could be 
something that eventually disqualifies him, that displeases God, that could interfere with him maximizing the eternal rewards that God wants to reward him with. And he says, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not to beat the air. So he gives this other picture of boxing. And um, I did a little bit of uh, amateur boxing back in the day. I wouldn't even really call it amateur. I was like nine or ten years old. But my dad, he encouraged me to uh, go to the local park district in Chicago and uh, learn how to box because I used to get beat up when I was little. And so uh, I had this crazy Polish coach who was like in his 50s. He had a, you know, you could tell his nose had been broken like 15 times. But, you know, he was just this hard, tough dude. Um, and, you know, after going there for a few months and doing some sparring, he's like, we're going to enter a tournament. And I'm like, okay. And so I signed up for this tournament and we drive down to the south side of Chicago for this tournament. And back in the 90s, if you know anything about Chicago, you know, it's, it's highly segregated. So when I walked into this large arena, um, I was literally the only non-Hispanic, non-African-American person in there. And people were looking at me like, what's this dude doing here? This ain't a karate tournament. And so when we were getting registered, he led us, you know, my coach led us over to um, the registration table and uh, posted on the walls were these uh, sheets where you had your, your assignment, who you were going to fight. And so people were crowding around that, and I, you know, kind of made my way in there. And so, I, you know, I put my finger on the, on the piece of paper where I was located, and I, I start scanning down the column, and I find my name, you know, Hilario. And, uh, you know, I'm looking to see who I'm going to be fighting. And this other hand shows up on the other side of the column and starts looking down. And it stops right next to my name. And so I froze. And I slowly turn my head. And I look over and it's like baby Mike Tyson looking at me. <laughs> this dude, he had... He had a neck like a pit bull, and he was sort of like cross-eyed. <laughs> and um, he looked at me. He knew what was up. And so uh, we get into the ring, and, you know, we're in front of thousands of spectators. And, um, you know, baby Mike Tyson's standing across the ring from me, looking at me. He's ready to eat me, you know, for breakfast. And... Um, so I started thinking to myself, the only thing I can do then is to essentially try to, you know, hit him with a haymaker and see if I can knock him out. That's the only chance I've got. And so when the bell rings, you know, we run up to the middle of the ring and I telegraph this long, sweeping right hand. He just ducks right under it. And I think he hit me with a 30-punch combination that left me basically in the fetal position. You know, finally the ref's like, okay, that's it. And so, you know, I understand what Paul's saying here. <laughs> you know, when, when you're boxing an opponent, you know, you shouldn't be like swinging like you're shadow boxing. You want to make sure to take aim and hit your target. And so 
Likewise, Paul is calling on us to engage in goal-directed behavior where he wants us to set goals, spiritual goals. Um, You know, really our spiritual lives should have goals. I know that sounds sort of surprising to some of us. You know, when you think about spiritual things, it's sort of like, you know, man, it's just, I'm so spiritual. I just kind of, you know, live by the Spirit, man, you know, and it's, it's, it's very vague. It's sort of, uh, you know, this, this sort of super spiritual thing. And yet, when you look at Paul, you know, he took aim and he had spiritual goals that he wanted to accomplish. You know, when you look at God's nature, it compels him both to set goals and to work. We can demonstrate this from Scripture. Look at John 5, verse 17. Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. It's within God's nature to be diligent. And also, that God has a purpose and a will that He seeks to accomplish. You know, in Isaiah 46, verse 10, where He talks about how he's going to make the future come to pass, that he predicts it. He says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And so God not only sets goals in that he has a will that he wants to accomplish, but he works diligently toward that end. And by extension, since God has fashioned us in his image, he's hardwired goal-directed behavior into our framework. Look at Genesis 2, verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. It's one of the first injunctions that God gives to the original humans. He says, I want you to cultivate this land. So he wanted them to engage in work. And that's one of the reasons why whenever we, we you know, work hard and we accomplish something, you know, you set out, to build something and you you finish it by the end of the day, there's a sense of accomplishment, a feeling of joy that you feel, fulfillment from working. God has created that into the fabric of our being. Third, failure to set and pursue concrete goals is sinful. Um, You know, you look at the parable of the talents Jesus tells this parable and says, there are these three servants. And the wealthy landowner came and called these three servants. He said, here, I'm going to give you five talents. You two talents, I'm going to give you one. And a talent was a large sum of money on the order of like millions of dollars. And so he went away for a long period of time and then he returned and said, okay, I want you to give an account for what you did with the money I gave you. The first guy comes up and he has five talents more. He doubled the master's money. And so the landowner says, good and faithful servant, come into your master's joy. The second guy does the same thing, doubles the money and gets the same response. The final guy, the last one, comes to the the landowner and says, I was afraid and so I took your money and I hid, it into the, I hid it in the ground. Here's your money back. And at that, uh, he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid. I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See what you have what's yours. But his ma- master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy servant. 
You knew that I reap where I didn't sow and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. And so the story ends with him casting him into the outer darkness, which represents hell, which comes as a shock. Because a lot of times we think of, you know, people facing God's judgment for things that they've done wrong. But as it turns out, God says that we're going to have to account for the life he's given us. Not only the resources, but the time that he's given us here on earth. That our lives are on loan to us. We don't possess our lives. God has given that to us as a gift. And he expects that we're going to do something with it, not just for ourselves, but also that it's going to pay spiritual dividends. And so, you know, when you look at this guy, the master, the landowner, calls him out for his lying excuse. He says, so you thought I was a hard man, that I'm, that I'm taking the proceeds from, you know, fields that I haven't even planted in. If you thought I was such a hard man, then why didn't you at least put my money in the bank to gain interest if you knew that all I cared about was getting a return? He busted him out for lying, for making an excuse for burying his talent. And so what, what was the landowner getting angry about here? Why was he so upset? Was it because this guy stole the money? Was it because he embezzled the money, used it for other purposes than what the master had given him for? Or is it because he didn't do anything with it? You know, God cares about what we do with our lives. And we will give an account for that. Now, <clears throat> I think it's interesting. There are a number of uh, passages in the Proverbs that talk about the sluggard. The sluggard is characterized as a person who is uh, habitually inactive or lazy by disposition. That's a great word. In fact, the King James Version uses the word sloth, which I think is very vivid. Um, but you know, the sluggard, uh, according to the Bible, there, there, there are moral components to being a sluggard, that God looks at this as a real problem. Let's look at some passages here. What about Proverbs 13, verse 4? The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. So it explains why the sluggard doesn't do anything. The sluggard lives in an imaginary world where they're fantasizing about the life they really want to live. And often, you know, you see people who are trapped in this sluggardly way of life. You know, they're prone to overeating, probably addiction to pornography. Um, you know, just playing endless amounts of video games, wasting away their lives. And, you know, a lot of times when you talk to these people, they, they talk about these, you know, grandiose plans that they have. They're gesticulating with their arms about how amazing this thing's going to be and this opportunity, and it all comes to nothing. That's the life of the sluggard. And it says that the sluggard gets nothing. The life of laziness, the life of a sluggard is one of depression. Because you're sitting around fantasizing about the life that you really want to live, but you're doing nothing in order to attain it. What about this one? 
Proverbs 19, verse 24, the sluggard buries his hand in a dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> oh, that's so pathetic. You know, you, you imagine you're sitting there in front of your bowl of soup and, you know, you, you, you dig your spoon into your dish and you're putting it up to your face and you're just like, oh, it's just too much effort, man. <laughs> uh, pathetic. I know a guy actually who lost 20 pounds because um, he was so sluggardly, so slothful that he was like, you know, I could go to the store and get some groceries. I've got money for that, but I'm just going to sit here and just watch TV. And so, you know, he was calculating. He's like, how much do I need to suffer before I actually have to go out and put some effort to fix my condition? The sluggard. What about this one? Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. That's what you see with the sluggard. You know, they have this attitude whenever you're like, oh, so, you know, do you have the bill? Do you have uh, rent? Or do you have, uh, you know, your portion of the utilities? You know, usually they're, they're sitting there glued to the screen. They, they barely lift their eyes to make eye contact with you. And uh, they're just like, I'll get it, you know, whatever. And they're making it seem like you're inconveniencing them, interrupting them in some important activity that they're engaged in. And, uh, you know, that's what happens is the sluggard doesn't work, is, is so lazy that they fall behind on their bills and end up having to, to feed off of the people around them taking money, expecting for other people to pay their bills. What about this one? Proverbs 26, verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Oh yeah, that's one of the real problems, one of the driving factors behind a slothful way of life is that usually sluggards think that they're too smart. They're smart enough that they don't have to do as much as other people. And so they can get by with a lot less. This is what Warren Wearsby says. The sluggard lives in a fantasy world that prevents him from being a useful part of the real world, but he can, he can tell everybody else what they can do or what they should do. He's never succeeded in anything in his own life, but he can tell others how to succeed. Oh yeah, sluggards are like the biggest know-it-alls. They, they think that they've figured things out. That's why they, they can do less than others. Um, now, <clears throat> you know, when you look at um, some people, they can't really relate to the sluggard. They're just like, you know, I work pretty hard, I'm pretty diligent. And yet, the question we should ask ourselves is, are our goals strictly limited to career advancement and materialistic pursuits? You know, for some of us, we're diligent but it's only in these areas that are related to career ascension and making more and more money. And yet, we find that we're so preoccupied with that, so consumed with that project, that it crowds out our ability to live successfully for God, to make a real impact for Him. And you know, one of the things that you find with people like this is that these are the types of people 
who in their major are like at the top of their class or maybe in their career are at the top of their profession. You know, people are constantly patting them on the back about how amazing they are. And yet when you look at them in the spiritual community that they belong to, they're not really making an impact. They've got all of this potential and yet they're not doing anything with it. And it's because they're preoccupied. They're preoccupied with living for the things of this world instead of living for God. You know, are we outwardly diligent and inwardly inactive? It's possible to be doing a lot, a lot of different things, being super busy, and yet not really getting that much done. And, you know, some of us uh, will engage in busy work, and yet we're not really getting anything accomplished. Here's what Watchman Nee has to say. Have you ever come across any go-slow workmen? They've taken a hand, a piece of work, but they dawdle over it and drag it out on and on as long as they can preserve any semblance of industry. For they're not seriously bent on working, but are simply bent on killing time. What is the trouble with them? The trouble is downright laziness. You know, this is the kind of person who, you know, works at their job. And, you know, they're sitting around. And when the boss, you know, comes in, you know, they, they quickly grab the mop and pretend like they're, they've been, you know, mopping the, the floor all day. And as soon as the bo- boss leaves, you know, they sit back down and start chilling again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all about trying to present this outward activity of diligence, and yet, really, this person is just faking it. They're downright lazy. He says, some so-called full-time Christian workers are so super spiritual that they see no need to work hard or to account to anyone for their work. They were employed in an ordinary job. No earthly master would let them off with such slackness as characterized their work, yet they actually delude themselves into thinking that they can serve God like that. He says, diligence is primarily an inward matter, and it's not measured by outward busyness. You know, you meet people who are just frantically busy, and you look at their lives over the course of years, and you think to yourself, what have they really accomplished? For all of that busyness, for all of that frantic running around, not much. Really, diligence is an inward disposition where you're, you're thinking about people. You're, you're reflecting on, on how you can do God's work more effectively, how you can do it better. Well, let's draw a few conclusions I think, first of all, God can transform you into a goal-driven, spiritually productive person. You know, some of us might be sitting here, and as we're reading through those Proverbs, are just sitting, you know, sinking into our seats further and further. And, uh, you know, we feel bad. We think to ourselves, maybe I'll just never change. Well, I have to admit that I had a problem in this area. You know, when I first started college, uh, the first two quarters, I, I had this bright idea that I didn't need to go to class. I could just read everything from the book. Because, you know, after all, that's what the professor does when he lectures. He's just basically teaching the material in the book. And so I was smart enough where I was like, I don't have to step out into, you know, two feet of snow to, to trudge my way to class like these other suckers. I could just stay in bed and sleep and then just wake up and uh, read the textbook. 
And I thought that was a really good plan until I started failing all of my classes. And, um, you know, it was kind of embarrassing. And yet, you know, even though I was a confirmed sluggard, God, over time, started to change me. And it was a process. It wasn't something that happened overnight, but, you know, I took small steps. And eventually, God started to change me, transform my life. And now I love working. You know, in fact, one of the things I have to do is stop myself from working because it interferes with my time with my family. And so God can change you if you have this disposition. Secondly, set aside whatever encumbrances or sin that may be tripping you up in your race. And maybe there's something that you've been hiding, something that's been tripping you up, something that you know maybe God has been saying, this this thing in your life is holding you back from really going all out for me. And so you should consider, maybe that's something that you should set aside, trust God with, that He'll provide. And finally, don't live your life for earthly treasures and rewards. Live your life for eternal ones. You know, you might be here and you may not believe in Christ, but there's a sense that you feel that I'm not sure what my life means or where it's heading. I feel aimless. You know, I'm, I'm doing all these things, and yet I'm not sure that it's really equating to anything of significance. God says that once you enter into a relationship with Him, you have an opportunity to live a fulfilling life. Not only a life of joy, but also a life that will earn you spiritual rewards when you finally meet Christ. And he says to you, good and faithful servant, come into your master's joy. Why don't we uh, pray and then we can uh, watch the game. Yeah, thanks that you give us such a challenging and meaningful life following you. I think a lot of times people think that following you is super boring. And um, my experience has been just the opposite. That it's been incredibly challenging. It's been um, filled with joy. At times filled with frustration and yet uh, totally worth it. And uh, I pray that um, we can become people who live radically for you. And um, that, you know, as we grow in our faith, that uh, we find ourselves becoming more and more radical, just like Paul. And um, also just uh, pray that we can, um, you know, become people who represent you in the world Uh, in a way that is pleasing to you, that we can be great ambassadors that reflect uh, your love and uh, the kind of values that you uh, really care about. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.